Let's pray together one more time. Father, I pray that you would please guide and direct in what we do in this Bible study. You know how difficult I've struggled with this passage. I pray that you would help me to communicate it in a way that would make sense. I pray that we would understand it clearly the way you want it understood. And I ask that you would just bless in this Bible study as well as the kids, what they're doing in their Bible studies. Help this to be a fruitful time in the Word of God, we pray in your name. Amen. Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3, if you don't have the sermon notes that are in the bulletin, the ushers will move around and hand that one. They'll have some in hand to give to you. We're in Job chapter 3, which is, to me, not a fun text to preach whatsoever. Let me see if I can give you a sense of what it is. We sing at times the song, Happy Birthday. We sang it this morning. We sang it in the beginning of Sunday school like we do every first Sunday of the month. And we sing that tune, you know, Happy Birthday to you, Happy Birthday. Very cheerful. Years ago, somebody gave me an alternate tune. And it's not as cheerful. It goes, Happy Birthday, Happy Birthday. Sin and sorrow fills the air. People are dying everywhere, but Happy Birthday. It's really a somber, sad-sounding song. It's not what we would think is an upbeat. That's the way I feel about Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3 is a sad, somber sound. It's a passage that I've got to admit I have never heard anybody preach before, and I'm struggling to find good material. I'm sure many have, but I can't find a whole lot. It's one of those passages that you're not going to find many of the quotes on mugs or on T-shirts or on plaques as far as on walls because it's a very morose, it's a very sad-sounding stanza of verses. It's poetry. And in the poetry that Job is, is writing and recording, what happens is the words that he gives are not filled with lofty praises like the hymns and the psalms, but rather it's a dirge. It is where he is downright despairing and despondent. It's almost dark. It's a depressing passage when you read it. And what he asks for is not what we would expect. In fact, the words that come pouring out of his mouth in Job chapter 3 kind of set us back like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're this man of God who's uh, this pillar of faith who when your children and everything was destroyed, you said that we were going to praise God. You didn't curse God. When your wife said, just curse God and die, you said, shall not we receive good as well as evil from the Lord? And then all of a sudden, Job 3 comes up. And it doesn't seem to match on our first reading. It, it kind of throws us. The text does. What do we learn from it? I don't know how to speak and I don't know how to teach it other than just to walk you through the text and hopefully get some sense out of it that it's, it's obviously profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You believe that? Okay. And all Scripture, therefore, is profitable for doctrine, for correction, reproof, for instruction in righteousness. So something, some stuff in this text, as dark as it is, there is something that God says, this text is going to glorify me. This text is going to tell you what you need to know more about me. So the best way for me to understand it and to walk through, I'm going to just share my study notes with you and do it this way this morning. We're going to learn about the ways of godly people by, like Job. For those of you who haven't been with us so far to get the sense of what Job 3 is about, what Job 3 is catching us and telling us about and explaining for us once again is that godly saints do experience a lot of difficult moments. Godly saints do suffer at times. In fact, if you've been with us, you've heard this several times already, but Job was just an outstanding gentleman. He was a godly individual. 
we put up there the first thing, he's rich, but that wasn't his character. That was, that was just showing us that though he was wealthy, he was still reputable, righteous, reverent. He resisted evil. He eschewed it, is the idea of resisting. He's an individual who, who is very, very concerned for his kids, prayed on a daily basis for his kids, offering sacrifices, lest they may have offended the Lord. And he's one who, who uh, is just just rock solid. We read about him even in the New Testament about the patience of Job, the endurance of Job, the resiliency. And here this man of God was doing so great, so well. His family was growing. He was prosperous. And all of a sudden one day, in a, we say 39 seconds because that's about how long it takes us to read what happens in the next text. That all of a sudden one messenger comes and then another messenger comes and then another messenger comes and another messenger comes. And in this matter of a minute, he hears about all of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his possessions, and all of his children. They are all gone in just that moment. They're not, they're not gone to the hospital. His kids are dead. All of them died in that one hour all of his, everything he's worked for is gone. He has no security. He has no pension. He has nothing. And then we read in the next paragraph that Satan wants to attack again, and so Satan comes and attacks with an illness. An illness that we're going to read about that lasts for weeks and read about that, that lasts for months. One that causes him distress and pain and fever and breathing problems and body odors. And he ends up sitting in the dump, away from everybody. He's the mockery of the town. His servants laugh at him, he talks about later on. The people used to come for counsel. They want nothing to do with him lest they get whatever he got. And so there he is, an ancient AIDS victim, if you would, over there in a spot where nobody wants to get near him. And his wife comes, and we talked about last week how she is suffering as well. But they are in, they are in great straits. And what happens is we go into chapter 3, and chapter 3 is when Job finally speaks out. He finally starts talking. What we learn from that whole setting, even before looking at his words, we know godly saints are not immune from trials and struggles. I don't need to tell you. You know that. You know that when you come to Christ and ask Him to become your Savior, that doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be, you know, roses and everything is going to be peachy keen. Rather, there's going to be trials. There's going to be struggles. And that makes sense because we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, as he wanted to destroy Job. It makes sense that we'll have trials because they're needed to help us to grow. The whittling of our temper, of our, of our attitudes, of our actions, the getting rid of the dross from our life by putting us in the flame and heating up the ore of our life so that all the impurities get to the top and be scraped off. And we have impurities, do we not? You know, impatience and ingratitude and selfishness and big mouths and, and rotten, rotten responses at times. And God's trying to help us to whittle those things away, to take off the dross. And we read in the New Testament many different texts that talk about when we fall into diverse troubles. We read about it's going to happen, not an if. We read Jesus' words that he said that when you who are believers are in this world... They would have loved you if you were of the world, but because you are not of the world, because you believe and you follow me, Jesus, he says, they're going to hate you. 
And he went on and told his disciples, they're going to even put them out of the synagogues. There's going to be a time when they think they're doing service for God by killing off the believers. And it still happens today around this world. Believers are still victims of attack. And Paul, under inspiration of Scripture, wrote that all who will live godly will suffer some form of persecution. It shouldn't surprise us that problems come. When Peter is writing his friends in Rome, he writes, he says, You are right now in the heaviness of manifold temptations, that the trying of your faith, being much more precious of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, it might be found to the praise and the honor, the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, that you might become more Christ-like. That's why, why we go through trials. The enemy. God trying to build us up. And Paul even writes, he says, This is what I want. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings so that I can become more like Christ, who hung on the cross and suffered and did not strike out at others. So it's no surprise when we come to the book of Job that in the book of Job we find out that godly people, that's part of the way of our life. There's going to be problems. Now in Job 3 we see the weakness. Now we get into the text. We see that when godly people are attacked, they have weaknesses. In, in this case, like in Job's case, Job is weakened by his trial. He is strengthening, strengthened to, to be able to say, let's praise God, let's not curse God. But as time has gone by, there's a feeling of despair that overwhelms him. There's a feeling of desperation. We read about it in chapter 3. Probably not a text that you are on a mark and say, I'm going to go to this for words of encouragement. But this is where the man is at. As you go through the chapter, you can basically divide it into three sections. The first few verses, he is going to ask a question. Now, let's set the scene of what's going on. It says, After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spoke and said. And so what happens in this text is in the next few verses, Job is going to really, really wish, wonder, He's going to say, I-, I wish more than anything else that I had never been born. Why was I even conceived? And what's going to happen as you go through those verses and you look at it, his poetry, and that's what it is. It's not like anything you, you and I, poetry is rhyming or it has different meter to it. Hebrew poetry in this case is a little bit different. The poetry is saying an idea and then saying another idea, then repeating the first idea, the second idea, the third idea, uh, the idea again repeated third time and again. So there's a lot of parallelism. In these first ten verses, it's loaded with it. He talks about, I rue, I, I wish, I hate the day that I was, the day that I was born. And then I, then I wish that the night I was conceived never happened. I wish the day that I was born were wiped off the calendar. I wish that there was no stars, no nothing that night I was conceived. I wish that it didn't happen. And he'll say it again a third time. And he's saying it all with this, this idea of just, just discouragement, depression. There are five different times in this text that he uses the word darkness. And when he uses the word darkness in the Hebrew, he uses multiple words for that word darkness that we read in English. Because he wants us to understand the entire gamut of whatever you want to call it. The darkness, the gloom, the, the you know, blackness. And he wants to give in a poetic idea to get the message across is, I wish that I were never, ever born. In the Hebrew, he uses a phrase that we would call a jussif. 
Uh, it's a form of uh, one of the verbs. And it's a strong way of saying, I wish. It's, it's used as pleading to somebody like a subordinate in, in prayer. Pleading to God. Well, he's not praying in this case. He's just saying out, and he says, I wish, I wish, I wish. And as you go through the text, here's what he wishes for. I wish the day had never come that I was born. He says down in verse 3, I wish the night had never been on which I was conceived. I wish the day had been void, not, not even on the calendar. The day that, that it would be dark, it would be blotted out. The day that I was born. Then he says, I wish God had kept the light of that night when I was conceived, that that, that night had, had just ended. He goes on, he says, I wish the blackness had blotted out the day. And, he, and again, verse 6, I wish that we would never ever celebrate my birthday again because... I wish it had never happened. This is not the guy you want to walk up to at this moment and say, how's it going? He's telling it. He's saying it. He's saying it's going really, really bad. And so he expresses it. He says, I wish I'd never been born. And then the next paragraph or the next stanza in the prose goes this way. He start in verses 11 through 19 as you're following along and, and just reading through as I'm making these comments. He basically says, okay, if I had been born, then I wish I had been stillborn. If I had been conceived, I wish I had been miscarried. And so he's basically saying, why didn't I die when I was born? It would have been better off to die, to have been stillborn, and to avoid all the suffering that, I, if, that I've had. Because you know, if I had died when I was a baby, then I wouldn't have had ten kids lose their life. If I had died as a baby, none of my servants would have lost their lives. In when the possessions were taken. If, if I had died, the, the world would be a better place without me. Have you ever heard people talk this way? And you say, eh, I'm going to move to the other side of the room. Well, we can't do that with Job. We can't move to and, and walk away from the text and say, it's not important. God put it here. So it's an important text for us to, to muddle through and to say, okay, what, you know, what's going on, Job? Job makes this comment. He says, if I had died, here's how much it would be, how it'd be better. If I had died, he says in verse 13, then right now, I'd be laying still and quiet, and I would be sleeping, and I would be at rest. I don't feel any of that right now. All I feel is turmoil. All I feel is inner, inner, inner consternation. All I feel is, is that I can't even sleep because the pain physically, the pain emotionally is so great that, I, that, I, that I'm losing days and nights of sleep and rest. And, and even when I want to lay down, there's no comfortable position. And, and all of his agony he's going through inside, outside, the body, the mind, the spirit. And he says, if I died... It would have been better. It would, it would have been good to have died because infants, when they die, they go to a place of rest. He makes the comment, he says, if I had died, I'd be... And there's a debate on the wording that's used here, and I'm going with one of the comments. With kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places. In the Hebrew, the word translated desolate in King James, some uh, have concluded that rather that word is the idea of these, these massive places like the pyramids. And he's looking and saying, you know, the kings and those, and he's not advocating their religious idea, but rather, you know, they're in an afterlife where they've prepared. And I've had, I, I wasn't able to prepare. Things came so suddenly. And here I am, you know, I wish I had died, then, then, I, then I'd be with those who were prepared for the afterlife. 
and all the torments. He says, I wish I, I were dead because if, if I were dead, I'd be in the place of the dead place. The place where those people go. And in that place, there's no more wickedness. Wickedness ceases. He talks about how there in death, there is rest. He talks about in verse 18, there the prisoners no longer hear their, their uh, tormentors. The, the people who had them in chains, who are whipping them, that they are, they are free from that. And in death, everybody's equal. And in death, there's, there's no rich, there's no poor. Everybody's on the same plane. In death, there isn't any prisoners anymore. He says, it would be so much better to be dead. It, I, 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 I just wish I were dead. Now, we don't say it quite that way. We, with our New Testament understanding of the future, we kind of just, we shift the words a little bit, but sometimes we say, I just wish the rapture would come right now. And get me out of here. It's too much, I can't handle it. That's where Job's at. And then Job, what he does in his third stanza of this song, he basically makes this comment that he says, in the, that phrase he says, why can't I die just now? You know, why was I ever born? And then why didn't I die when I was born? But why can't, right now, why, just, just let me die. Just let me die. He talks about it in verse 20, where he makes the comment, he says, the, uh, there are people, so we have to back up where he's making comment about uh, people searching for a treasure. He's going to use that analogy that people search for treasures and they can't find the treasure. You know, they got the treasure map and, map and X marks the spots and they don't find it. And he says, that's where some of us are at. He says, some of us, some of us we're, we're in such bitterness. We're in such misery. We long for death, but it doesn't come. We can't find the end of it. And we dig for it more than for hidden treasures, which those who find the hidden treasures, they rejoice exceedingly and are glad and especially those who finally get to the grave and they rejoice because they found the treasure of release. I wish I could be there as Job. That's his comments. He just basically says, I want to die. Why is it, he says that, we, we, we are in this turmoil, I'm in this turmoil and in this problem and I don't understand and it's such a mystery and I want to end the agony. That's Job. That's Job who praised God in the first chapter. That's Job who is making these comments. Now, here's where some authors go with chapter 3. There's not a whole lot about you're going to find about chapter 3 written because most people will preach chapters 1 and 2 and jump to chapter 40. A lot of commentators do the same thing and they bypass chapter 3 because it's so dark. And some who do deal with it say, oh, Job is suicidal. Because if anybody you knew said what Job said, you'd have to call the hotline. If any kid in school made the comments that we just read about in chapter 3, state law says we're supposed to call somebody to get intervention for him. So Job must be suicidal. Job must be ready to jump off the cliff. I don't think so. I don't think Job is suicide. Yeah, he wants the end for the suffering. But, uh, but the point is, there's never in any indication that Job says... I'm going to take my life. In fact, chapter 6, he talks about how you and you alone are in charge of days. That it's up to God. But he is saying, I wish for it. I want it to end. I want this suffering to end. Is he going to take his own life? I don't think he's anywhere near that spot. Some have suggested that the reason Job is saying all this, when Job makes a comment a little bit further where he says... Um, Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? 
The idea is that the same thing that Satan had said earlier in chapter 1, that you have hedged Job about. You have put a barrier around him so that nobody, no attacks can get to Job. And if that hedge were removed, then Job would curse you. That was Satan's thought. Now Job brings up that same hedge idea. That Job says that I'm hedged in by all these problems. And here it is. And some say, well, this reveals that Job really did have, an, have a guilt. That Job was struggling because he knew he had done something wrong. And that Job wasn't righteous. That doesn't make sense, folk. That just can't be. It can't be that he is saying this because he's guilt-ridden. Because we already know that God has said he's a righteous man. His wife talks about him being a righteous man. Satan talks about him being a righteous man. He's not guilt-written. This isn't his comments aren't because he's, you know, he's got something secret in his closet. God would know that. So that's not what he's doing here. Okay? But the question that has to be discussed is, how can a believer like Job talk this way? How can a born-again believer who worships on Sunday come Wednesday or Thursday be so discouraged and so depressed? Well, here's what some offer. Some say, well, actually, Job really isn't righteous. What he said before and what he did to his, said to his wife was the man thing to say, the husband thing to say. Like, woman, you talk like a foolish woman. You know, and he corrected her, but he himself now is saying, this is the way I feel. This is the way I feel, and I'm revealing my real heart that I am angry and bitter against the Lord. So some say that he has reached a point of total defeat. He's quitting God. He's giving up on God. Some say that what happens is this is where he curses God. And in chapter 1 where it said that in all this Job curse not God, that doesn't apply to chapter 3. That only applies to chapter 1. I don't think so. I, I, I can't reconcile that in my mind with what the passages say. I believe when it says that Job cursed not God... He cursed not God. I believe when it says at the end of chapter 2, or verse 10, where it says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I believe he did not sin with his lips, even into chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way through. In fact, I'm convinced that Job maintained a point of integrity all the way towards the end of the book, because in the last chapter of the book... We read where God is speaking, and God is saying to the three friends, where he says, I have somewhat against you, because what you have said is wrong, but my friend Job has spoken what is right. And God confirms what Job has said throughout this book. So I think what's happening in this book is this. I think we're getting a realistic picture of what happens to believers. When they go through grief, great trials, that even godly saints can have moments where they are wondering what is going on. And it's okay to wonder. I believe that what's happening in this book is we're getting a picture that godly saints can get to the point where they feel it's too much. We know that God says, I will not give you that which you cannot endure. But that doesn't mean we're convinced that we get those moments where we feel, it's just too much, I can't go on anymore. I feel overwhelmed. And I am pretty certain, if I were to ask you right now, have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you said, God, it's too much? 
then many of you would say, yeah, I have. I've not talked about it the way Job did, but I felt those overwhelming moments. The pain, the hurt, the losses, the struggles, the attacks, the accusations. And so in my thinking, what Job is doing is he is speaking frankly and openly with his friends and with the Lord and saying, this is the way I feel. I am not being rebellious, but God, this is the way I feel. I don't understand what you're doing. God, this is, this is, this is beyond me. I don't feel like I can endure it anymore. And in Job speaking this way, we have to ask the question, why do you think he was at this moment where he felt such a despair? Remember at this moment, he isn't seeing any good things come out of the tragedy. You know, we believe Romans 8.28, yes, no, all things work together for... Yeah, we believe that, yes. But what happens when you don't see the good things coming out of it yet? Okay, he's at this moment that he's talking, he sees no end to the suffering. Remember, you know chapter 42. You know the end of the story. Job doesn't. Job sees no end. This has been going on for weeks, for months, he says. He has no divine explanation as to why. He doesn't know, excuse me, he doesn't know any of the conversation that took place in heaven. You know, God gave you an idea of Satan and God having the discussion, but Job doesn't know that Satan was a part of this. Job has no clue. He doesn't have that understanding. So Job asks multiple times, why, 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 why? And right now, he's not certain what God thinks of him. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. But he doesn't know, Lord, are you on my side or are you against me? And so I understand where Job is. Let's just, let's just stop taking the book as a whole and knowing the ending. Let's step out of our sandals, put ourselves back where Job was in chapter 3 and understand what the man was thinking at that moment. He was He was struggling. He was in great pain. He doesn't have all the answers. By, by the way, this is you and me. Here's our weakness. We can be afflicted by discouragements at times. That's our weakness. This is a true weakness. We don't have all the answers. Amen. We don't. You may not be convinced of that. You may think you have all the answers. But the reality is you don't. I don't. We don't, we don't have all the answers to walk up to somebody and say, well, you know why you went through this problem. We don't have all that insight. We are weak. We struggle. We can get discouraged. Isn't this a positive message? Doesn't this just build your heart? Remember, happy birthday, happy birthday. So as you go through the story, just, just let me put this in perspective. And then we're going to get to something that's positive. Lord willing. Okay. Job's not the only one. Let's just get a glossy picture of Scripture, your big picture. Moses, did he ever get discouraged? Yeah. Great man. Great man. Tremendous man of God. One of the heroes of the faith. Lord, I can't take these people anymore. Have you ever prayed that? Okay. I can't take these people anymore. Take my life. There's, there's the story of David. You want to read a dismal psalm? Usually they're lofty. Read Psalm 68. David's in the pits. 
We, when you read about people like Elijah, I mean, none of us have had that neat experience of calling down fire from heaven. We've wanted to on somebody we didn't like. You know, but it's had not happened. And then just moments, days afterwards, it is enough. Take my life. We read about individuals like Jeremiah. Jeremiah who says the same thing. Jer- you read the text. It's, you know, it's my mother's fault that I was born. <laughs> Grateful son. <laughs> you, you read where Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we despaired of life. We were so overwhelmed, we just despaired of life. You, you want to read one that doesn't talk about, about dying? But you remember the greatest, Jesus said, the greatest man who's graced the face of the earth was John the Baptist. None greater, he said, than John the Baptist. Do you remember when John the Baptist is sitting in prison? Do you remember he sends messengers after he's been in prison for a while and he sends his servants to go and ask Jesus this great question, this profound question. Are you really the one? He baptized him. And when he baptized him months earlier, what did he say? Behold the... Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the earth. He heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son, whom I well please. Now, months later, after sitting in jail, when he's lost his freedom, he doesn't know what's going to be next. He says, are you really the one? He's, he's struggling. He's confused. He doesn't have the answers. That's you and me at times. By the way, is it a bad thing? You know what? When we are weak then we are strong. You know the beauty of weakness? It makes you rely on somebody else. You know the beauty of... I don't know how else to say it. Do you know what the beauty of stupidity is? Ignorance. Ignorance. That's a better word. Of not having the answers? You have to go to the person who has the answers. So our weaknesses are not bad because then we get rid of our pride. Then we have to run to the Lord more. Let's look at the words of Job. The words that we just mentioned, we have his weaknesses that are portrayed, we have his the ways, his trials. But in this situation, Job's words, yeah, they're filled with cries of despair and discouragement. But I want you to remember this. The next time he talks, he speaks chapter 3. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, his friends respond to him. Four and five. Chapter six, when he opens his mouth the next time, he says, "Uh, some of my words were a little bit rash. He'll make that admission. But he never, ever curses God. Never. Never in the text do we read that he curses God. He is an individual that he never attacks God or accuses God of doing wrong. He wonders what God is doing, but he never attacks God. He never turns against the Lord. As we already mentioned, that in all of this he did not sin. As we mentioned, in all of this Job sinned not. As we mentioned in chapter 42, this phrase at the end, God's, God's conclusion after talking, God says, none of you has spoken what is right like my servant Job has. So in all of this conversation, through all of his, his dismal feelings, he doesn't curse God. He doesn't attack the Lord. His words are words that are honorable, they are real, they are speaking what what he knows is right. These are words that we would call lamenting. Like Jeremiah does in the book of Lamentations. 
Every chapter starts with Jeremiah speaking and saying, I don't understand. This is really difficult. This is so hard to figure out. But as he speaks and shares his heart with the Lord, the chapter shifts, and by the end of the chapter, Jeremiah is saying, your mercies are new every morning. He is speaking very openly, very honestly. He's speaking plainly because he understands God already knows what's on the inside. Do you realize God has read your MRI? God knows your CAT scan. You're not hiding anything in your brain, in your spirit, in your soul from God Almighty. So to speak with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand. He already knows you don't understand. So instead of going to God and pretending like everything is okay in your spirit, just tell him. Speak to him like a friend to a friend, like a needy person to a, to a providing creator. Go to him and let him know, Lord, I am overwhelmed. Lord, I don't understand. This is really difficult at this moment, and I'm weak, and I'm falling apart, and I don't know how to go through the next day. I don't know how to face tomorrow. You didn't realize something? He wants you to depend upon Him. He wants you to call upon Him. And you know something else that's really beautiful about this? When Job or others speak this way, they know that God understands what they're saying. That I, I'm, I, do, you remember, do you remember the president from the past? He got elected basically by this statement, I feel your pain. Okay, some of you don't have no clue who I'm talking about. Okay. But, y'all... So every time I use that phrase, I hesitate, like, Ugh. okay. But God does feel your pain. God does know what you're going through. Do you realize that, that when you face hunger and tiredness, like you're in a desperate spot, you're really hungry, you're tired. Has Jesus ever experienced hunger at a great degree? Yeah. Okay. Did Jesus ever get rejected by family, by community? by friends, by enemies. Does he know what it's like to be falsely accused? He does. Does he know what it's like when you, the family belittles your faith? He does. They came to take him home. They said he was mad. His own family, his own brothers and sisters. Jesus understands when you say, I, I just, you know, this rejection is so hard. Does Jesus understand persecution. Does he understand what it's like to stand for what is right and be attacked? He understands that. He feels that. Does he understand poverty when some of you say, we don't have a dime to pay the next bill. I don't know what I'm going to do. He had not a place to, what, to do what? Lay his head. Does Jesus understand those agonies that come with divorce? I should say God Almighty. God says in Jeremiah, he says, I have had the bill of divorcement with Israel. Some of you have gone through the agonies of being rejected by a spouse. He went through the agony of being rejected by his Old Testament spouse, Israel. Does the Lord understand physical pain that you're experiencing? Did he ever pain and agonize? Yeah. Does Jesus understand the agony that some of you experience with death? A lady was telling her own story. She talks about it. She says, her name is Gloria. She says, I fell into deep anguish over the dismal prognosis of my daughter's illness. 
My daughter Laura had already suffered enough from a degenerative nerve disorder that she had been born with. And now the doctor's forecasts included more suffering and impending death. One night after leaving my daughter's bedside at the hospital, I walked into the parking lot and I spat out, God, it's not right. You've never had to watch one of your children die. As soon as these words escaped my mouth, I clasped my hand over my mouth. He did watch his child die, his one and only son. So, what do we learn? We learn from Scripture that our words should be the words of pleading to the Lord God Almighty because in all things, Jesus Christ is a merciful, faithful high priest. So he suffered all things. He was tempted and tried in all points so that he is able to, the old English word, sucker. It's this idea. You're laying in bed. And in the middle of the night, you hear that small little voice from the other room saying, Mom, Dad, I'm scared. And you jump out of the bed, and you head to their room, and you provide comfort. That's sucker. That's the idea that Jesus is able and willing and ready to do that for you. When you cry to him that you have a need. He was in all points tempted like as we are so that we can obtain mercy in time of need. The words of a Job should be the words of like you. Words where you don't curse God, but you come running to the Lord and saying, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. This is the way I feel. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm stretched beyond measure. I'm out of my comfort zone. Please, I need you. Because I'm in such desperate straits. That's what this is all about. The words of a godly man. It's okay to share with the Lord your struggles. You don't have to pretend you are a great, strong Christian. That nothing is going to move you. You don't have to do that with the Lord. He is willing and ready to assist you. Then there is this last thought. The will, the want of a godly saint. This to me was the most provocative, the most challenging thought out of the passage. That Job is coming to the Lord, and he's got all his discouragement, but he makes comment in this chapter that there was one thing that he really feared. He talks about it as you go through the text. Look at verse 25. 25, he says, One thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. That which was I, I was afraid of, it's come unto me. What is it? What is the one thing that Job greatly feared? There's a variety of comments. A variety of comments include that Job was, the, the most precious thing in his life was his possessions. It was his family. He feared more than anything that something might happen to any, anybody in his family. And it happened. Or Job, he, the one thing he feared is that he would be afflicted with an illness. He didn't want to suffer some disease. He never wanted to go through dementia. He never wanted to go through cancer. He never, and that's what Job's greatest fear was. I'm not convinced that's the case. I think there's something deeper here. I think that Job, it's tied up to what he is thinking about God at this moment and what he thinks God thinks of him. 
Because at this moment, Job is starting to think that God has hedged me in. That is, God has built this wall about me. And I'm on the inside of this wall. And God is on the outside. God has put a barrier between me and him. And I'm sitting here, and this is what I feared for my kids. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5? I'm going to run and I'm going to make sacrifice lest my kids offended God. And as a result, God would do something against them, separate them from himself. And I wanted to make sure that as their priest, as their parent, that I did whatever I could to help them stay close to the Lord. I didn't want them to be separated from the Lord. And he was fearful of that. And I think this is what he was afraid of for himself. Think about what happens in the book. In this book, Job and his friends are clustered. They're sitting there. Remember, seven days have gone by. They've said not a word. Chapter 3, Job speaks up. First words. But they all are thinking this. They're all thinking God has turned against Job. Job even makes that comment. Job says, let me know why you contend with me. Why do you hide your face from me? Why am I your enemy? Oh, that I knew where I might find you. Your decrees are against me. God, I'm in dread that, that you are no longer close to me. His greatest fear. His greatest fear was losing a close fellowship with the Lord. How does God get glorified out of this text? We see that the greatest concern of a godly individual is their walk with God. That that is the most important thing in their entire life. Let me see if I can illustrate with a silly illustration. There's this orchestra from Germany, longest traveling orchestra in the world, longest period of time that they are continuously doing concerts. They came to Lawrence, Kansas, where they were doing a concert several years ago. They were doing it in the Hoke Auditorium. And it was a spring night, unusually warm, so they opened up the doors and the windows. And they were getting ready, this world-renowned concert group there, getting all the instruments. The director came out. He was a stern taskmaster. A stern maestro, but he was great and talented. He came out, got the orchestra's attention, and he started off. And the music filled the hall. It was beautiful, they said. It was just rapturous as the sound just, just consumed every space in the room and then started floating out the doors. Well, as it went outdoors, it got others' attention. And it got attention of some stray mutt that all of a sudden came walking in the side door. This dog of no breed or mixed breed came walking through right by the stage door and before anybody could grab the dog because they were listening with rapt attention to the orchestra, the dog started walking through the orchestra. And here he was visiting the violin section. <laughs> And the violinists, they try to be professional about it, keep on going. And the dog walked over to the cellist. And the cellist was going back and forth, you know, with, with the bow and watching the dog, watching the music, watching the dog, watching the music. And the dog just tail wagging, enjoying every moment. Stagehands try to step out without distracting far enough to reach the dog, but every time the dog meandered close and saw them, it would meander back towards this side. 
and back and forth for several minutes in the concert visiting you know the brass section and visiting the violinist and the flautist and it was all over this platform and then the dog went and stood right by the director the director is leading and the dog is right there and the director has got the stern look at the dog. If, de- if looks could kill, the dog was dead. And the director is going, and the dog is just carrying, you know, just quietly watching, swaying with the music, and it got too much. A couple of the different instrumentalists, they just lost it. Soon as they lost it, you know how it works? Yeah, you're trying not to, and it gets worse. Soon as they lost it, it had a rippling effect, effect all the way across the entire orchestra. Soon all of them were laughing, and so was the audience. There was one person not laughing. He tapped his baton, got everybody's attention, smiled at the dog, turned to the audience, did a thumbs up, and got back to the music. Picked it right up where they were. Played the music. Every so often, while he's directing, scratched the dog's head. <laughs> got through all this one section of the song, and when it was all over, the audience gave the director a standing ovation. He led the dog off to the side, came back out, was laughing about it. Do you see any analogy in this? We are these mutts that kind of meander through all the blessings of the Lord and we're in rapt attention of what God is doing. And won't it be cool in heaven to hear the orchestra of God's majesty? But we wonder, will the Lord allow us to sit in joy? If you're born again, he does. Amen? He lets us enjoy the maestro's work. But if we're not born again... He might pour out that wrath and have us led away, not to enjoy. Job is at this moment thinking, the maestro has turned his wrath upon me and is no longer letting me sit and enjoy. I am cast out of his presence. I am no longer in the favor of the Lord. He is the maestro who is venting his anger upon me. And Job knows no better. This is what Job thinks. So how does God get honored in all this? <laughs> Job is revealing to us that the most important thing in this life, even in our dismal moments, is protect our walk with the Lord. Protect our walk with the Lord. Do whatever it takes. In your heart, Plead to him, I want to stay close to you. I want to stay close to you. I want to stay close to you. He's going to find out later he's still close to the Lord. But the point is, you and I need to have that same desire Job did. Lord, I want to be close to you. How can I... Do you know how we say this? How can somebody handle death without Christ in their life? How can somebody handle serious illness without the Lord? We say that. Well, let's ask ourselves this. How do you go through life in trials and troubles without the Lord? That's what Job is saying. I can't go any further without you, Lord. I just can't. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. 
Do you in your heart say, I need you, God, so much, so desperately that I'm willing to read your word every day? I'm willing to pray to you every day. I'm willing, God, to resist any temptation that comes because I don't want to sever my fellowship with you. Lord, I I am going to obey you. I am going to confess my sins quickly because I don't want to be hedged away from you. I don't want you to turn against me. I don't want you to to be angry with me. Lord, I, I want such close fellowship with you. I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to rely upon you. I'm willing to run to you every day, multiple times, because, Lord, I need you. Are you willing to say, God, I need you so much, I will call upon you to be the forgiver of all my sins, the Savior of my soul? Job has less knowledge than you do about the Word of God. But Job had a great hunger for God, a great desire to be close to the Lord. Do you? Do you? We can criticize him for some of his comments, but we need to commend him for his heart's desire. The thing I dread more than anything is not being close to the Lord. That's Job. Is that you? We've been saying with this series, walk away with one thought. Here's this week's thought. Very simple, very, very profound, if you would. Cling to Christ. Make this your hourly prayer close to thee. Close to thee. Help me to stay close to you. Close to you. In the trials, let me rely upon you. In my weak moments, help me to run to you. In my strong moments, help me to run to you. In my, in my frustrations, help me to run to you. In my temptations, help me to run to you. In my quiet time in the Word, help me to run to you, not just go through the motions. Help me to run to you. Help me to be close to you, Lord. That's Job. That's Job 3. The cry of a person who's hit rock bottom who desires to stay close to the Lord, is that you?